Hey there, my name is Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question, not to provide you with the universal answer, but to provide content that helps you find and define your own answer to this question. On the 15th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I'm joined by Benjamin Western. Benjamin is essentially a humanitarian. As the founder of the Shining Light Project, a trustee at Hope and Aid Direct, a volunteer at the Samaritans, and head of sustainability at LRQA. This episode is different from previous podcasts in that it's more of a conversation rather than an interview. And we are focusing on the teachings of Anthony DeMello. Anthony DeMello is an Indian Jesuit priest and a psychotherapist, a spiritual teacher and author of several spiritual books, including Awareness and The Way to Love, two books that were massively influential and impactful on both mine and Benjamin's lives. So we're really excited to sit down and discuss these and and perhaps bring the teachings of Anthony DeMello to to new ears. In this episode, we explore and reflect on Anthony DeMello's core teachings, essentially that our attachments in life are making us suffer. We explore where we as humans are most attached to possessions, caring what other people think, our habits, our achievements, our ways of looking at the world, and our proclivity to chase thrills and excitement rather than what actually makes us feel good. I love discussing these themes with Benjamin, who is a wise and thoughtful soul, and I'm sure it will give you plenty to contemplate in bringing more awareness to your own attachments in life. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like, share, and subscribe, as I'd greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 15th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. So Benjamin, thank you very much for joining me on the What is a Good Life podcast today. I'm very grateful to have you here and very excited with our agenda today to discuss the work of Anthony DeMello and more specifically, uh, The Way to Love. Yeah, great. It's great to be here. And I'm also, I'm already confused where I should look at you or look at the camera. So you <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to look at you. Uh, So yeah, yeah, it's it's great to be with you, mate. The first question I have for you uh, in this discussion is, what first brought you or how did you first discover the work of Anthony DeMello? Yeah, it's one of those those books actually where it feels like it was the book I was always meant to read and it's the one that's probably had the most profound effect on me. Uh, It was recommended to me by a dear friend who is one of the most curious uh, people I know, also one of the most sceptical people I know. And we were discussing a whole series of things that we'd personally recently gone through in our life. And I, I'd been on this, I'd really got into sort of studying for theology, which is which, which was quite new to me at the time, off the back of going for a period of reading a lot, a lot of books. And I was particularly interested in spirituality uh, and the mystics. And so this friend said, oh, have you ever read Anthony DeMello? And I never heard the name. And so they said, oh, you should read a, they said you read Awareness, which is the first of these books I read. And yeah. it just knocked me for six. It was just such a, it, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever read a book so quickly. As in, I sat two sittings and I, and I was through it. And, and then I then watched his lecture after I'd read the book. And I was then even more compelled because if you don't know, if you've never heard the person speak, then you don't know their tone of voice. So you kind of make it up in your head. And yeah. and so then I watched one of his lectures and just found him to be the most engaging, humorous, kind-hearted, wholehearted person. Uh, and then so I then really went down the rabbit hole of all of his work. And I'll be including the links uh, to some of his uh, to some of his speeches or some of his uh, workshops that he hosts. Uh, I think uh, is it Fordham University or something like that. I, I I don't know if it's Fordham, but there's a university that he gives a series of talks into, which are are unbelievable. To people, to the uninitiated, Benjamin, how would you describe Anthony DeMello? Yeah, so his background was he was a a Jesuit priest and a psychotherapist, which itself I think is part of the reason he's so compelling, because. I don't know whether you can go as far to say he was a polymath, but he's a spiritual thinker that was grounded in Catholic theology. And then he went to Spain, and in his, I think in people's interpretation, his eyes sort of widened. And then so he, it was that point he started to really use Eastern religion as well as let, let's say you know the Catholic religion uh, in his work. And so what he really cared about was how people strip away all of the things that are essentially stopping them from becoming the person they're meant to be. Oh, and you could say that in many different ways in finding who they really are, in finding peace, in finding fulfillment, in finding happiness. And so he was a, he was a remarkable thinker, uh, but he was as remarkable as a speaker and writer. And to me, what 
what his outlook on the world was. And he sadly died at 55, so he died very, very young, was ultimately how people kind of find a good life, right? Which is why I think we're having this conversation. And yeah, I think as well for the way I was describing to people is that he's just a wonderful, wonderful spiritual teacher. And I think the word spirituality is, it can often seem a very nebulous term. And I like the way he described it, which is, is one of the most practical things you can learn in the world. Because spirituality is essentially how do you live a life free of attachments, which is I'm, I'm sure what we're going to talk about and what that actually means. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's that's nicely summarized. You know, there's something about his work, and I, I like the way you said one of the, one of your friends that recommended you to him was also really cynical. Um, because for anyone who reads his work, he talks about really beautifully connect, like connected nature of 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 people, of humanity, of something deeper within us, of higher powers, all these things. But he he talks about them in the least fluffy way. Like I, I kind of I kind of think about reading his books as almost like, I don't know, getting a series of punches of reality to the solar plexus. <laughs> um, and even even how he describes things, like he'll often call you um he'll often call all of us like asses. Like you're yeah. an ass, I'm an ass, we're all asses, and we're all creating our own suffering. And the way he presents a lot of this, as Benjamin was saying, is it's it's in a quite tough, joyful, loving, caring way. It's it's a weird mix of all of them where you feel simultaneously held and a little bit threatened because he's coming after <laughs> he's coming like, after you and he's and he's coming after your attachments. Yeah, low um, low, low, low key threatening. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you just just from your perspective, Benjamin? How how would you kind of start to even begin to unpack? the the crux of his teachings and and look we will be going through in more detail even the way to love um but even just from awareness um you know just the the crux of his teachings around attachments i think that's a really great way you described it actually and it's a nice avenue into talking about attachments which is his principal teaching is that every single human being is attached to something and in fact most of us attached to many things and His belief was, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is those attachments are the source of our misery. And the way he would, like, if we think about attachment, for some people it might be money, it could be status, it could be love or feeling needed and wanted, Uh, it could be it could be drugs, Uh, it it could be uh, constantly getting promotions in work, it could be food, it could it could of course be unfortunately many of those things and we're attached to those things because we've been conditioned to be attached to those things so if we think about given the fact his grounding was in uh, catholic teachings that and i'll and i'll paraphrase sort of paraphrase and probably butcher the theology but the idea that only children can enter the kingdom of heaven what what that's about is actually there's an innocence to children whereby you know i've got a young daughter uh, you're imminently going to be a dad, and as any parent will recognise, watching a child is, is is the greatest gift on earth because they have no attachments, certainly in, in the very early days, and so they look at the world with this wide curiosity and wonder and just explore everything. And then what happens is society, through the fact that we all get attached to things, we all have an ego, is that we start to condition in the beginning children and then eventually it continues through our life to become attached to things and some of those are in the way that we structure society so if you think if you live in the uk for example unless you're particularly courageous and primitive and live in a field with a tent and forage uh, you're going to be required to uh, work and earn money and so on and so forth and but when we go into those systems we start to become attached to things so you think about the school system which is their sets and you'll be placed in sets, we could suddenly become attached to hierarchy in a way which is unhealthy or attached to the idea that we've got to be the best or get the highest grade, or we might become attached to cigarettes or whatever it might be. And eventually those attachments are the thing that causes misery because we deem we can't live without them. And when we deem that we can't live without them, that's when they can start to become troublesome because they start to shape all of our behaviours and all of the way that we show up in the world. And as we have probably all experienced, I certainly have, is suddenly you find yourself 
almost totally unaware of what you're attached to and your dependencies upon them. Yeah, I, I love the the idea of we can't live without them. And, you know, whether it's in, because there is a bit of crossover between the way to love and uh, awareness as well, right? Um, but, you know, just even we can't live without them. I think in the way to love, he gives the example of how you've just broken up with someone, you're absolutely crushed, you can't go on. And then fast forward a year or two later, you're fine. <laughs> do, do, do you know what I mean like so it's uh it's not to say that things aren't painful in life but it's the idea that we that we project onto things that there's so many things that we think we will not be happy we make our, our happiness contingent on so many things that ultimately if we are to to examine more closely we can live without them like so it, I don't know there's just something there's something so fundamental to the conditioning and it's not in this like everyone's out to get you the systems out to, well in a way it kind of does i guess but, but it's not it's not in that sense that uh it's it's just more when you look at so many of the things that we do with our lives i can't i'll be happy when i'll be happy if like he's saying that you have everything at your disposal to be happy right now it's just that we're making ourselves miserable yeah i, th I think that's really well put and it it I could always, I, well, I I feel like I can deem the strength of it by how how often I really gift it, and and so I've given this book to to many people, and one of my favourite bits of feedback from from a friend I gave it to, and and this person is the most cynical person I know, like beautifully. Okay. The, word, the, the word cynic often gets, I think, um, the gets lines. a bad rap. Yeah, yeah, gets a bad rap. <laughs> but the the true definition of a cynic, same as the true definition of anarchist, actually, that there's a there's a there's a as an original definition, which is kind of been uh, manipulated some way. Uh, so I really always value the way that they will judge a book because they're more disagreeable than me. So I, I can be a bit naive and, and too agreeable sometimes, you know, blessing and a curse. And they said, I found myself getting so annoyed by the book and wanted to disagree with all of it, but then I couldn't. <laughs> and, yeah. and the thing I think is what powerful, what, what you've just said and about the way to love is that, there are some overt things which we know are unhealthy attachments. So if, for example, someone was addicted to alcohol or, or drugs uh, or, or gambling, that's very powerfully obvious that this probably isn't a healthy thing. But I think the thing that Anthony Mello's truth bombs connect to uh, or, or resonate with is that actually there's so many things we that we're attached to that we don't even realise we're attached to. Or perhaps another way that we're in denial of or we have blind spots on. And so I remember someone that I, I used to work with and they said, I just need praise. Like, I need to be constantly praised. Right. And, and, and what was interesting was they were really aware of that and they were really humble to it and they, they found the humor in it. And this is before I'd read Anthony Mello's work. And I always, I, I, it stuck out to me because it was just funny the way they, they described it. And that's a really good example of an attachment, which is if they didn't get praise in some way, they felt unworthy or they felt they were at risk of losing their job or they felt unloved. And that's a very, very, that's an archetypal attachment that even if, even though they're aware of it, they still didn't believe they could live without it because when they didn't get that recognition, their life would unravel quite quickly and it would be the source of their misery. And actually, the that person years on having read Anthony Mello's work said they still have to battle almost daily with not being attached to that need for recognition uh, but they've said as they've become less and less desirable like desiring of recognition it's having a really positive impact on their life and so in his work though there is there are some quite there are like when I stand back from it, I go, yes, there's truth to this and and it resonates with me. And through, as I experience life, it resonates with me. And I do feel, even after having first discovered his work last year, even in the last year, I'm, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of stepping back or I'm zooming out a little bit from life in terms of my attachments while still being a human in the process. Um, and... And in it, though, I find it like the things that are quite confronting are like we have attached, you know, even this idea, the attachment to being praised. And I'm sure most people will say there's nothing wrong with being praised. And then 
of course okay that may be true but it it only it only serves you when you're getting praised all the time the moment someone restricts that from you you know life is very painful once more um but the i think the most confronting part of it is and maybe in its most extreme sense is and there is a i'll i'll be my term to to butcher paraphrasing one of the opening sentiments but something along the lines of you won't be free or you won't be allowed in heaven until you hate your mother and your father in the sense of that you you're letting go of your attachment even to the contingency that they make you happy and it's it's a weird thing because when you listen to him speak he's so clearly full of love i've i've heard of other people that are in his in his uh we're in his circles and also describe him as so full of love like a lightning rod but full of full of love and I, yeah. I do think this is one of the hardest kind of things in this attachment thing is to to not like or you know it's almost like letting go of your own mother so that you could see everyone as your mother like that's the, that's almost the crux of it um yeah. how how do you engage with that one even as a, as a father with <laughs> with the daughter or how do you see that or even a, am i am i mis- am i misinterpreting it like you know well, so so this to me is, I think, in terms of interpreting theology and spirituality, and in fact, almost any spiritual teacher I've ever read, I think this is the one at the most extreme end. So let me try and unpack this because I was listening to a Lex Friedman interview with a rabbi uh, the other day, and this rabbi was deconstructing differences between Judaism, Christianity, uh, uh, from uh, Islam and Buddhist teaching, etc., and it really fascinated him because he's a very empathic, very sincere, be- like very beautiful person, and very non-dogmatic, or as undogmatic as you can be uh, as a as a rabbi. So I think everything ultimately comes of some dogmatism, sure, including this conversation. And when he spoke about Christianity, he said the one thing he didn't like about Christianity was that precise line, which is, you know, Jesus saying. You've got to be willing to basically you know, hate your, your, you know, your own parents, and it, and so, <laughs> and he dislikes that because he thinks ultimately, as is the case with in Judaism, is that you know community is almost the centre of everything, and that is the most fruitful part of life. So, I think if there's one thing in the teaching that I disagree with from Antetimelo's work, it, it's probably the extreme extremism of, of that sentence but I'm not necessarily fully disagreeing with it so let me take the one further one step back from that extreme level which is where I do agree is that when you look to the people that are most free are the ones that are truly themselves with the type of person that walks into a room and they radiate energy that they're just at peace and we know there's not necessarily as, as you unpack in your work there's not necessarily one path to that in the sense of we should do these things in life, we should behave this way. But the one true path that I, I do think there is, that all the mystics teach, including Anton Mello, is those people tend to be not attached to anything yeah. or attached to very little. So they're not worried about praise. If they lost a job, if they lost their money, if if they lost recognition, if they lost everything that they had, they would probably still be as content. It doesn't mean I don't have a, mo- a minor moment or even a lengthy moment of disorientation and and perhaps heartbreak, but I'll, but they'll get through it very, very quickly. And so what Anthony Mello is saying there like, very directly is that you should be able to lose everything, including anything that people deem who you are, and, and you'll be fine. And I, I do agree with that. But then when you get into territory, well, that also includes your parents' love. Yeah. Or or I think one further than that, your child's love. Now, I, as a, as a dad, I feel very, very comfortable that I'm attached to my daughter. Yeah. And I don't, but again, there's a spectrum of what does attachment mean? Now, if I was attached to her, that my happiness, let's say, for example, my daughter was unwell. You know, I've seen and know of parents that sort of, you know, their life crumbles and they fall apart. And then actually, because they can't handle their, their child being sick, and then actually they become more of a burden for their child or, you know, let's say the child is young or a teenager or in their 30s or 40s. So that's an unhealthy attachment. 
And so I think there's a very subtle but important difference between feeling still being wholehearted and, and kind and loving, but not having the attachment. And I think if that's where people will find these work the hardest because there is a subtle but very, very big difference. So I, I, I'm kind of with the rabbi, which is I don't think that last part is kind of necessary, but the whole but the remaining sentiment is probably the true source of what it means, I think, to become a person at peace who become, who's able to live as themselves and and, and i'll be. i'll channel the the spirit of anthony de mello and us I'll, I'll call you an ass for such a for such an <laughs> egregious attachment um, but but it, so this is in, this is interesting though because from my own personal experience and and not as a father let's say but you know with very important relationships in my life i think I am going through a process of losing a lot of what I would consider to be quite uh, typical attachments and uh, which have allowed me to live a freer life, like not maybe getting so obsessed with certain milestones or how my life appears to other, to other people on the outside, which I'm very grateful for. But as you're talking there, there's a scene, um, there's a scene in um, that uh, BBC series with Sherlock Holmes and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman or whatever, where they're looking at, they're saying that there's an incoming attack on a house or that people are about to invade the house and they're trying to find out where the safe is. And as soon as they impart this information to the lady that owns the house, they look for where her eyes go to first. And that's where they find the location of the safe, right? So it's like in an extreme pr- pressure, where do you look to? And, and, I, and when I think of death, for example, for me, I, I don't think death to me, for, for whatever reason, I feel kind of not, I feel it's life and death, birth and death, right? It, like, I don't want to sound too trivial about something, but when I think of death, my attachment to my wife comes up. And, and of course, now she's pregnant, though, that will be another thing. But th- that's the immediate attachment that comes up. That would be the person that would be most affected by me leaving this planet. I sometimes feel if I didn't have that, I, I, that I wouldn't be or sorry, this is a heavy, t- or this is a big thing to say. So I'm not trying to dismiss everyone else in my life or anything like that, but everyone else isn't as dependent on me or wouldn't be as affected by me or it wouldn't be as painful. Obviously my mother will have something to say about that, but, but you, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I do think though, then how can I say that I am not, uh, I am somewhat unattached from the concept uh, of dying I think our attachments kind of get hidden in in convenient diff- or my attachment I've I've conveniently said okay death doesn't sound so confronting to me but then it it's kind of splintered off into my atta- you know it's kind of it's hidden in the attachment to my concern then for how my wife would feel if I were to die is that is there has that made sense I'm trying to explain something that's a bit of a, a tricky one for me to explain yeah it it does and I think this is where also the reason I, I'm, I've been so inspired by Anthony Meadows' work is that he was so kind and loving. Mm. And so I think you can hear what we've just been talking about, about attachments, and assume that it's devoid of, of love and empathy. And you know, I think I don't think what he was saying is that you know, grieving doesn't exist and that we, which is what the Stoics said, right? So the Stoics would be like, oh, I think it's a phrase, there's, there's a passage, I think it's in Seneca's work, or it might be Epictetus, where Oh, my, my son, someone's son died. It's like, it's okay. It's, you know, it's just death and sort of move on. And I'm just not, I'm not in that camp. I, I would take the, the idea that absolutely grieving is a long process. And in fact, you'll probably never get over a death of somebody. And, and in, in actually, I think in not being attached to things, I don't think it has to mean that you're not concerned with the idea of what might happen if you were to pass for your family or, or, you know, or if your wife, God forbid, were to pass or, you know, God forbid, a, a child passes. And so, and I, I would say, actually, that's that's still the bit of his work that I want to kind of, not I need or want to get to the bottom of uh, right. from a sort of intellectual point of view. But yeah, I, I, I certainly think I'm with you on that, which is that, to me, I'm happy to be detached from almost everything, bar the safety and security of, you know, my immediate family yeah it's, it, which is um so l- let's zoom back from there because we've gone to the the, hard, <laughs> the hardest part uh and the most extreme maybe version of his attachments but you know go, going back even just to 
I do think that there's so many unhealthy attachments which have been completely normalized, right? Um, which I think it, that's really, I think, where there's like, look, there's lots to go in between where what, the extreme we went to versus there's lots of amazing things that can happen in your life if you start to let go of the attachments um, between between the start where most people are maybe and and that that end point or the, the last big attachment. Um, I, I think a lot of those kind of focus around the idea of really you care too much what other people think of you. You you're pro like as he says so often in in both books really is you, there's nothing wrong with you but your programming is all wrong 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 and and i think it's um i don't know i i think that there's so many avenues for people um either that are going to read the book or that have read the book or that are listening now that there's so many avenues to explore in terms of where your attachments are just making you absolutely miserable and even like to make it less abstract like i, I think there's loads of things in our own life. You mentioned a whole series of things that people typically get attached to, maybe even addicted to. But if we step back from our lives, even just the modern person, like our attachments to even to technology, like if if he were still alive, I'd say his mind would just be spinning on his head looking at, at how, how we're doing this. Like we know there's so many things in our lives that we knowingly enter at this point that literally make us miserable. I'm not saying all technology, but just a healthy use of it. Like I, I know myself, okay, I, I exercise fair, fairly regularly. I, I can eat well most of the time, but I have like some really un, unhealthy attachments to food every so often. And and I know I'm going to eat like a bastard and I, I know I'm going to, uh, you know, even when I've purchased it all and I'm, I've picked a movie to watch and I'm talking about even, I'm not talking about even just a frivolous Saturday night or something. Sometimes I'll I'll get quite attached to food and, and I'll repeat the same process or so you can kind of see what he's talking about even or maybe you brought your laptop into the bedroom with you and you've stayed up a bit longer and you've and you wake up the very next morning and straight away you say, I'm not going to do that again. And then fast forward 24 hours later and the exact same situation or, you know, 12 hours later and the exact same situation is 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 uh, playing out again. And so I think even if we don't go to the extreme one. For anyone listening, like there's so many attachments in your life where if you stand back and observe what the consequences of those attachments are on a regular basis, that you're literally going to make yourself miserable. Or even the continuous kind of false summiting that we do, once I get this next promotion, once I get this nicer house, once I get this thing. And like it's just so rife throughout our whole culture that there's going to be something outside of yourself that is going to make you content. And I think even if we bring even a little bit of awareness to our lives, we can't fool ourselves anymore. Do, do you know what I mean? I am not free of attachments, but when I go to the supermarket and if I stock up on a bunch of a bunch of nonsense for the night, I'm I'm trying to soothe something in me, but I know it's not the answer. And I think unless we start to deliberately let go of these or even just bring awareness to the process and examine these. We're like like that Buddhist expression. We're literally going to be perpetually the hungry ghost. Yeah, I, this this to me is is one of the most energizing things you can ever talk of. And I think the part of the the art and beauty of Anthony Mello was he spoke about this with such humor because I think if, if you took an archetypal, let's say Catholic approach to this, it would be very much about shaming and 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 talking about sin and wagging the finger. And what Anthony Mello did so well was, and he, he talks about, he referenced that book called I'm Okay, You're Okay, which is a very famous book to sort of say, you know, everybody's okay. And he's like, no, I'm going to write one called I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. Yeah. <laughs> think, that hits the human condition. And, and he talks about, I think he references a story about, it might have been Gandhi, where this lady comes to Gandhi with her young child and says, can you tell my young child to stop eating sweets? And Gandhi refused. And then they came back a week later and then he said, please stop eating sweets to the young child. And the mother said, why didn't you tell him to do that last week? And he said, because I, I wasn't doing it myself. So who am, like, I'd be a hypocrite. And there's that phrase, which is I lose my freedom around a plate of sweets. And I lose my freedom around a pack of biscuits. You know, I don't buy biscuits because I realize I have no control. I can't have one biscuit. I'll just eat the full packet. And then I feel you know, like I've disgraced myself. <laughs> and then I feel gr greedy. And... And that's what he talks about, you know, the, the programming, that human beings, it, uh, we are immensely susceptible 
to becoming attached and addicted to almost not almost anything but two things and our societal structures of course will program us in some ways uh, I think particularly amongst competition and so how often do we see hear these stories of billionaires millionaires or, or say someone just on a six-figure salary that will say I was happier when I had 15,000 pounds a year yeah which is is it's kind of absurd if you think about it but it's because we just and it's the whole you know aphorisms of you know keeping up with the joneses and things like that and i think when he talks about the way to love or when he talks about awareness it's like it's always the same path which is just be aware of the things that you're attached to and recognize that you don't need these things you know recognize that that you are in some way programmed and and the thing is, you can go really intellectual on this uh, and start to think, well, how are we programmed? Is it nature nurture? Uh, how is, how societal structures influencing us? But ultimately, it doesn't really matter because whatever stage humanity has been at, you know, whether it's 100 years ago, 10 days ago or 10,000 years ago, we've always had the same vulnerabilities, which is to, to get attached to these things which are ultimately unhealthy for us. And it is a thing of freedom. You know, that's that's how you get to love. If if we consider love being the most purest form of being a human, which is you, know, you can call that happiness or contentment or fulfillment or the good life, it's all primarily the same source. And you've only got to look to the people like Anthony Mello. Uh, I always use a reference to my granddad. But those people that you know are, are the most content. Is I do think it comes back to the source of of detachment. Yeah, when you say that, the the first person I think of is, uh, is a deceased auntie of mine who was um, literally like had the least interest of anyone I knew in establishing, you know, in establishing more and more stuff for herself. It was like almost how quickly she could give things away, um, and and yeah. I think it's important for people to to realize too when we're talking about letting go of attachment. He's not talking about renouncing every worldly thing. There's a big distinction here, like. You know, if somebody says they've given up cigarettes, but they've given up cigarettes one year, six months, three weeks, and two days, and three hours ago, um, they're most likely still attached to the cigarettes. Like he's talking about like letting go of your attachment. You can still engage in worldly things. You can still achieve things. You can still have nice things in your life. But it's it's the mechanism of knowing that you can do without this thing and that thing isn't contingent on your happiness you know when when he talks about love as well in this book he describes that and i think it's really beautifully like that love is seeing things as they are like love is almost the ability to look at the world as it is and not wanting to change it um not wanting to the world doesn't have to adapt for your level of happiness you can be happy with looking at the world and it's almost he has this beautiful idea which really when you hear it the first time it really knocks you for six but this idea that you know suffering doesn't exist anywhere else other than in the human mind and <laughs> that's you know Oh, and I, I had to hear that a few times where I'm just like, or even to think about that a little bit to go before I'd even understand what he means by that. But he's not saying that pain doesn't exist in the world. And he's not necessarily saying that the world fits up to a construct or a concept of the world being fair. But the suffering really comes from the, our deep rooted sense of attachment to wanting the world to be one way rather than seeing what it is. And I, and I think in, in this book, he... And one of the areas that he brings that up is even in like relationships with family, uh, friends, but particularly even partners that, and I, and I think like, you know, when we talk about conditioning, like there's a real sense, like when you look at so many of the, the normal ways that we'd almost can term conventional wisdom of how one should relate to a partner, like there's so much around that in you hear people, how can I change my partner? If only they did this, then I would feel happy. If only, you know, or if only my child would do this, then I would be happy or my life would be complete. And it's, it's so true, like to truly love anything and yourself, it's to see it as it is right now and be in acceptance with it. And, and I think that's something that's really kind of unfortunate about our, even in our endeavors to feel better about ourselves like in self-improvement of course try to be fitter stronger and faster if that's what you want to be of course try to be more intelligent more healthy whatever whatever it may be or more well-read or more informed but to know that like 
if your level of self-acceptance of self-love is predicated on the outcomes of any of these endeavors, you may technically, in air quotes, improve as a human being based on external metrics or how people perceive you, but it won't shift that kind of internal thing that so many of us struggle with, which is, man, I feel like a bit of an imposter, man, I'm not worthy, man, I'm so stupid, man, how could I do that? Like, how could I not consider this X, Y, or Z? Whereas really, I, I fully agree with that. I've spent a, I think it was this book that really made me shift in terms of trying to be better or trying to be virtuous and punishing myself in terms of even like using the metric of like enlightenment against myself. <laughs> do do, oh, do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like the, the race to be the most enlightened. And like he, like, I think the, to, to connect the last two things you, you, you spoke about there or is that it, I've never seen this poster which said, Art won't save the world. Go and work in a soup kitchen, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it made me laugh. It's a very funny poster, right? But you think there's this, there's a, there's an irony there because the person that wrote that is basically saying art doesn't matter, and that itself is an attachment they've got, which is art doesn't matter. And I'm working a soup kitchen, so therefore I'm kind of virtuous. And so it's like you could um, you could spend hours unpacking that. But you know, I think what Anthony Mello was concerned about which is what i think all the mystics concern about is that we're all born to be this unique individual that has these uh god-given gifts which you can take metaphorically or, or literally or nature-given gifts and if we could just be the person we're meant to be then and then we give the most of the world and that's when we become you know that's how we find love and the, the challenge we've got is we then get attached to all these things that aren't who we are and that's the source of our unhappiness. And so if you take, I remember, being, I think to to on a spectrum, again, we all have a certain level of dogmatism and some are blessed to not have any announced dogmatism in them and others will be very dogmatic. And I was, I remember always never being quite sure about the fashion industry, you know, fashion itself. And I was you know, involved with other work. I thought, you know, do we really need to concern ourselves this much with fashion? And a friend of mine who understands fashion more, so I sort of put the question to her to say, like, okay, help me understand this. And the way she spoke about the beauty of fashion and the elegance of taking certain materials and fabrics and making them into these patterns and how wearing certain garments can make people feel like themselves in a healthy form. And it was such a gorgeous way to understand something which I didn't understand. And so... It was like what I realized in reading Antonello's work is that I probably had some sort of attachment of feeling probably this low-key anger towards how much money goes into the fashion industry. And of course, there'll be unhealthy things in that industry, but there's also very, very healthy things. And I think you know, what Antonello was always talking about is that is this thing in your life healthy or unhealthy? And if it's unhealthy, it's, it's, it's an unhealthy attachment. And if it's healthy, it's probably because it's who you're meant to be. And so it's clear that there's, there's certain people that are meant to be meant to develop spaceships, right, or, or te technology which alleviate suffering and poverty. And there's people that are meant to be in, uh, in a, an indigenous tribe and just be a person of their community. And I think that the program we come to is 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 we lose ourselves in this world of things which when ultra makes attached to, thing, to things and or something that we were never meant to be or concern ourselves with and and it's quite hard to unravel all that and to be aware of it particularly because i think if there's one attachment which i think touches us all certainly in the western world is, is busyness yeah and we're so attached to busyness and i you know i have real empathy for everybody including myself on it's very hard to turn away from that busyness uh but Ultimately, what we need is a space and time to to step away from the business to kind of realise what our attachments are. And there's a phrase that Antonello has, which is there's a moment where you think you're either going to become a psychopath or a mystic, right? And that's normally running on the board. <laughs> like, or or you look at the world and you say, "Am I crazy, or are all of these people crazy?" Yeah. And yeah, if you were to look at the world from the outside in and observe the behaviours, I mean, it's it's to me the world. Like it, not to get, or probably to get very like very existential here. Like the world is a phenomenon, hmm. and it's it's a it's a miracle that it works so well. 
And I think it's very, very easy to be hypercritical of ourselves and of the world and, you know, lament the systems we've got. But it, it, it's very important to be kind to yourself and to, to look at the humour, which is, again, why I, I'd always recommend people first watch Anthony Mello talk, because if you read his words black and white, they can seem really harsh. And as you said, they do pack a punch. That's because we kind of need that. But it's, you know, the modern term is Kim Scott wrote that book called Radical Candor. And I remember the second edition, she spent the first 20 pages defending the title, which kind of got ridiculed. Right. But what I really love about Kim Scott's work is that Radical Candor is about giving people honest feedback, but in a really loving and caring way. Yeah. Well, and, well, and that's what he does. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's so true, though, because uh, I think we confuse loveliness and kindness, you know, and I, I would describe his work as very, very kind, um, but it's not lovely. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean like he's not he's not like uh, it's like that friend that will just always tell you that you're doing the right thing like that's not what we need uh, but I th- but I think yeah. it's it's so important you know even to as he's kind of alluding to in this book what struggle like how why you struggle to see reality is because you're not even aware that you're looking at the world through various different lenses like, you know, so whatever country you will come from, that, they'll have certain um, prevailing, um, you know, values in society that you're not even aware that that's one of the first lenses you look through, like looking through your religion. Um, then even just like our attachments to concepts and labels about people, like even, you know, even if we look at a, even just our use of labels, sometimes if we label something a tree or a chair, like that doesn't, t- if I tell you I saw a tree today, that doesn't really tell you much, like, but we kind of leave our stories at this. So he's kind of saying that we've stopped looking at the world with any kind of, our minds have lost their sharpness. Like there's, there's all these layers over our, that are over our mind that we have, we're not even aware of just how blunt an instrument our, our mind is in perceiving reality or perceiving what is. So when he talks about love being, looking at the world um and just accepting it for what it is we're even we're so incapable of just actually seeing things for what they are because you know we're so either through our programming our belief system you know all the even the habits that we form like our habits will inform us too as to whether something is uh you know that will have a huge effect on us as to how we perceive something if it's acceptable or not just by virtue of the the fact that we've continuously done it all this time and so, I, you know, I, I, you know, when you mentioned there, like if you were to zoom out and look at the world, like our behaviors are so ridiculous, of course, right? And we're just, we're a mental bunch human beings, myself, myself included. But I do think as well, though, if you do step back from society and, you know, you mentioned your grandfather, I mentioned an auntie of mine, but I do think a really important step in all of our um, kind of awareness journeys around what will make us happy is like, look at the amount of people in your own network that you believe are truly content or happy. Now, I, I don't mean that they are they have the biggest house. They may well have the biggest house. Like, I'm, I'm not making any correlation between, um, you know, effectiveness in society or material wealth. Ab- absolutely not. But I don't know many people that seem truly content in their lives. And I know a lot of people that play this system very, very well. And... So that should be the biggest clue to us all, really, shouldn't it? Like that we're all playing this game and yet we're all kind of saying that we want happiness. Like, you know, in all these 150 interviews I've done so far, people generally want to feel good. Some sickos like me and uh, <laughs> some friends of mine maybe say suffering um, at times in terms in terms of facing things. But generally, I want to feel some degree of contentment or, or peace in myself, I would say. And, and I think that's... Yeah for any for anyone listening like that can that can be a very helpful way into this because if we're all saying we know what makes us happy if we all say that it's um the kind of prevailing culture or beliefs that we hold this is the right way to live because we're doing a lot of that too in terms of judging people from other societies other countries other backgrounds oh there they don't know how to do things we do like show me the cohort of people that you're you're modeling your expectations of eventually attaining some degree of happiness or peace in this life. Yeah, I fully agree. And the the thing of another thing Anthony Mello would say is as soon as you apply a label to someone, you're done for. Yeah. And I love that expression because, and it's becoming aware of your own 
labelling of people. Like how many times do you do we see someone do something or someone show up with a certain haircut or certain outfit and immediately mentally will apply a label to them? Yeah. And say I say I were to say I'm a capitalist or I'm a communist or I'm a humanist or I'm an entrepreneur. It's like well, the, the word your mind will start potentially whirring and with what this person is or isn't. And Antonio says, well, that's of course absurd. Now, of course, words help. So if I if I turn up and say and you say, you know, what do I do? I say, well, I'm a human being. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to purposely infuriate people. But he's, you know, he's right that we. It's almost like the world is def- is defined by labels. Whereas, you know, I think the the thing that's really compelling about someone like Anthony Mello is that you know someone that was he, you know, he was a Jesuit priest and a psychotherapist, but when you hear him speak, you would be almost almost unable to pin down any label on him yeah. because he was, and I think that that speaks to the beauty of being open-minded and curious because he brought together so many different in, in, insights, but also he was a personification of what he preached, which is it was clear that I, I'm sure anybody could say anything to him. And even if he was for a split second affected by it, he just wouldn't be affected by it. And that isn't to say he didn't care. In fact, quite the opposite. And I think, if I were to summarise the one key takeaway from all of his work is that it's by freeing yourself from attachments that you actually become the person you're meant to be and then become the most valuable person to yourself and to your loved ones. So when you're not attached to things, when you're not labelling things or labelling yourself, you can just devote yourself to to doing great work and being really caring yeah. and, and being a great parent or friend or sibling, or whatever it might be. And I, and I think this is um, in the very first chapter of this book, he makes a big distinction between worldly feelings and, and soul feelings. And that being like, OK, I feel good, just like your friend who was saying that they need to be praised. You know, so I feel good when I have praise. I feel good when I have power over other people. I feel good when I have uh, I've had some form of achievement. We all know that those feelings, they can feel very intoxicating in, in, the, in the moment we attain them. And for a moment, we're, it's a difference between chasing like pleasure and excitement versus then examples he gives kind of for more soul feelings are like the feeling you get when you look at a sunset, the feeling you get when you're in the presence of someone that you have a huge amount of intimacy and love with. Um, like these things where it's not about the, ch- you never had to chase them. And and I so I, I think there's this really nice distinction, even just from what you're saying there. Um, to add to it, it's like you were fine as you are. It's just that we're doing a whole bunch of quite unnatural things that stops you being from who you are. And you know, I yeah. I recently went for a, for an ultrasound with the missus, and like so she has a little baby growing inside her womb that's not going to shock anyone obviously right (laughs) but when you're when you're watching it you're just like holy shit like she's not trying like my miss is not trying to grow this thing like just the intelligence of the universe or the intelligence of creation is at work and she's she's not trying anything like and you know, with us too, like it's it's on our unnatural desire to try to change us, to try to fit in, to try to take on all these other expectations and win all these approvals of who we are that are essentially obstructing us from being who we are. And and I think even in terms of, I don't know, like I, I look at purpose a lot from all the interviews that I did. Like I think I think like it's letting yourself become who you are. It's you're not trying anything. It's like, I don't know, like he told, I think he could mention this in awareness, but you know, unobstruct the eye and what does the eye do? It sees. Like, I think so much of our own journey within ourselves, And I think a lot of what he's talking about is if you get out of your own way and you stop, stop obstructing yourself primarily through attachments, you're naturally going to do what makes you feel good or what gives you this like soul feeling rather than this worldly feeling, which is this fleeting little thing that we, we get so sort of needy for, and we're trying to like cling on to for dear life. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful way to, to, to summarize it. And I think that the, it, it is, uh, Claire Grays would speak about that. We have these different stages of evolution and, the, and each stage is, is what you call spiral dynamics as, each of the stages has a, a particular sort of value system way of looking at the world. And so it began with stage one being primitive and stage two was tribes. And, and every stage has these healthy and unhealthy expressions. And 
And Western world is, is very much is a stage five world, which is kind of really just defined by the capitalist system. And the, the healthy expression is try to create things which alleviate suffering, mm. like make the world better, better medicine, better science, better technology. But the unhealthy expression of, of stage five of, of the Western world that we're in, which I think Anthony DeMello you know, sadly passed away too early. I think it's 1987 he passed. I, I think he was just, his work would is becoming more and more pertinent because what we're what we're doing is we're creating more and more products and services which are essentially able to addict us or attach us to them. And so like the the image of what Anthony Mello talks about is what we're trying to not do is is like when you're on a on a tour bus and you might be seeing, let's say it's like um, Victoria Falls and you get off and you take a bunch of photos, post them on Instagram and get back on the bus and you never really saw Victoria yeah, Falls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it was all about that I was there, I took the picture, and, and now I've got some likes because of it, which, which sounds like a very a very cruel way to describe the world. And, and again, but that's leaning into what Anthony Mello said, which is I can kind of sugarcoat that right? and, and sort of say, well, uh, you know, it's, there's some positives about that. But, but fundamentally, we do have our eyes are obscure. We're not, we're not living in nature as it's kind of meant to be. And you know, that's really understandable because the world can be difficult and you know we've built this system where we need a certain amount of money but uh and to sort of survive but it doesn't mean that we can't find a better path and you will find people that uh, that are truly actualized and feel fulfilled and are content and not attached to things in you know and they and they live in that western world and and all the rest that comes of it but again it comes that subtle difference between healthy like having healthy habits and unhealthy habits which are rooted in attachments which aren't ultimately good for us can you uh can you kind of outline the story that he gave because like you know people could be listening going yeah it's all well and good but if if you didn't have these things or if i didn't send my kid to to private school it really would be the end of the world there's a lovely story he gives of the the rickshaw and kind of you know we're talking about how we came to his stuff but kind of how he like a big shift in his life was a seminal moment of engaging with the rickshaw because he lived a long time before he started to have some of these realizations himself like he was a clergyman for a long time before he suddenly he saw he suddenly kind of realized what was making him miserable yeah it's i think that's what part of the compelling part of the story which is it's the self realization that the thing you've been you yourself are attached to all these things and he describes the story of this rickshaw drive and i i would really encourage people to i'm sure you'll put the link to see him antimelo talk about it because he'll of course by default do far more justice to it than i but there was a rickshaw driver and what antimelo was talking about is that this is a brutal job that their life expectancy i think it's something like in their 30s or 40s because it, it literally just crushes your bones and and it's just so debilitating and yet this rickshaw driver was just one of those people that you know beaming smile and i'm sure we've all met these people like doing this job which is the bottom rung of society i, I guess there's a rung below it which is you're not able to get employed employment because of you know maybe a caste system or or some other prejudice but in terms of people that are employed, he was the bottom rung of society. This job, which caused him all of these physical, uh, crippling physical pain, uh, and also was just a very, very unwell man. And yet, he was the happiest man that he'd ever met because to him, he understood his lot, and he was content with that. And you know, the way this, the way this person would describe their life, it's, it's just so moving because. I think a lot of the time we might see these memes of you know, that the, it's one of those pictures of like a trail of people by an escalator coming out of a tube saying, you know, human beings were born to work nine to five and jobs we hate to buy things we don't yeah, need, yeah. you know, that very famous sort of terms of phrase. And what this story taught us is, is that even if you're the most conspiratorial Torah person and you truly do believe that the system is all rigged and it's, and it's run by the Rockefellers, right. Or whoever it might be, and that there's these there's this Illuminati that are puppet masters that are controlling the world. Like even if that was true, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I think is true. Then it doesn't mean that you can't be truly fulfilled and happy and and detached from things. And that's what that rickshaw driver was. He just understood who he was. He loved his family. He lo- he took all the enjoyment he could from his job. He enjoyed giving people a ride, and he just didn't expect anything else. And that isn't, I think people could hear that and might think, well, that sounds demotivating. Surely we should aim higher. But I think the challenge with that mimetic code, that value system of say of the society we live in is that aim higher typically means earn more. Yeah. 
get more things, get a higher status, be more recognized, you know, do the TED talk, write the book. And whereas actually the people that the stories that we like telling are the people that we truly loved. It's not whether they're a millionaire or whether they had no money and lived as most, you know, like true aestheticism. It's just they, when they walked into a room, they were just a shining light that they made people feel better about themselves and they just looked content. And, you know, that's what that rickshaw driver was. And, and surely that's got to be the goal. And I think what you'll find is the people I know have read this book is that the stories they tell of the more detached they come from these things that they've clearly now identified as attachments, they become happier and and more fulfilled and more content and yeah and it's just a truly kind of beautiful way to live and to his point like that is the way to love and you know with with this like it's not uh it's not all or nothing and this is most certainly not a a mechanism or another stick to beat yourself with and uh you know that you're just almost this like moronic creature that doesn't know what's good for them like it's it's to do this in a playful way like it's it's to realize like, oh my God, like I do have all these attachments. And, and even just to start to make realizations, I think that, you know, if, you're, if your happiness is contingent upon other people changing their behavior, you're going to feel, you're going to suffer all your life. Like if your happiness is, is predicated on the world bending to your needs and all of a sudden society adopting all your beliefs and systems, you're not going to be happy. And I, and I think there's levels to this too. Like, and, and he talks about it as well. Like he, he describes a lot of us are locked in a prison, uh, a prison cell. We don't even know we're locked in the prison cell. Um, that's, I'd say, where the majority of society is is uh, residing. Then some of us are locked in or realize we're locked in the, the prison cell and we're trying to, I don't know, get better ventilation, maybe get a little bit better food. We're trying to improve the conditions of the cell. And then there's some rebels, he says, that are literally just knocking down the the prison walls and in terms of their attachments. And, and that's that's where they're going to find liberation. Now, I think I'm probably, I'm maybe chiseling away at the prison walls, but I've also made the conditions a little bit nicer. And I have, and there's there's a spectrum to all of this, right? Like I, I live my life in a way that I know that I've kind of booked the trend of what a lot of my peers have approached life. Um, but I know I'm still attached to maybe having a hero story or returning and showing everyone I did it my way, but I did it just as well as they did in the material. You know, there's certain attachments, but I, I think it's, awareness 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 of just what your processes are and and even an aware like i think it's it's so it's not the zero to a hundred in you know in in a in a in a flicker um it's continual awareness and also even just i i think i don't know about you benjamin but like even like laughing at the human predicament sometimes so even as you're in, indulging in the attachment like going fucking hell like i'm, I'm still doing this this is I, you know, I know this isn't going to bring me happiness. I, I think even that, like, while I do think while there is the attachment still lingers that you're, I'm still not going to bring myself as much happiness as I could. But just to to be kind with yourself as you go through these processes of identifying awareness, paying attention to awareness, but just not looking away from it, like not fooling yourself that the thing that you're you're seeking is going to make you any happier. Like, you know, I. I touched on before, like with uh, with you, even in conversation. I'm in a new industry, trying to trying to make a career for myself in another way. I have no, I I put no stock in the idea that once I have success in this field, that that will greatly change my level of happiness. It will be my level of attachment to things which will predicate my happiness at any given point in time. And so I just think some of these things are really fundamental and even even freeing us up to live the life that we think we're supposed to live. Yeah, it's really important to get across that the, you can really have fun and joy with this. Like if I use a biscuit example, like I now eat a packet of biscuits far less than I used to because I'm aware of the attachment. Yeah. But the last time it happened, <laughs> it's like confession here. <laughs> I just found it fun. <laughs> I just I just found it, very much your Irish accent. Um, I just found it funny um, because. Yeah, because it's when you become aware, you know, it's what I think Socrates said, uh, you know, or it might be someone else, but like, um, you know, the unaware life is not worth living is when you realize that we all have these attachments, find the humor in it um, where it's possible. Something somehow habit attachments might be truly unhealthy. But, yeah, don't don't be heavily punitive on yourself or, or feel shame or guilt. Just have to have fun in becoming free of those attachments and you know when you attach them again or you you, you 
you go around the cycle of the unhealthy habit coming back like if you can just chip a little bit away each time you know it's like you know again a very western world thing to say but if you get you know one percent better every day that compound you'll be sort of 36 percent further ahead if you if you sort of reframe that to think if you can get one percent less attached each day to something then in a few years hopefully that attachment will be gone and yeah, I think one that comes up a lot in, in my work and conversations with people is people are very attached to how they're perceived. And let's say, for example, you're not very good at getting critical feedback, that you might never not struggle with getting critical feedback as a very innate human emotion to have. But actually, it can be the real unhealthiness is letting that negatively affect you for like a long period of time. Because what that's going to do is stop you enjoying your life and being yourself. and because that's not that critical feedback might be fair, but if you can detach yourself from the emotion of, of making of overwhelming you or or distracting you or absorbing all of your energy, and instead just go, if that person was being a true ass and they were unfair in their critical feedback, you can just be free to give love towards them. And if they were fair in their critical feedback, you can be focused on improving uh, for next time. But just don't get attached to this thing absorbing all of you and who you are. And you know the same goes with. If you do have an aspiration, for example, to be a CEO one day, then to do that in a non-attached way means that you're just beyond that path in this way whereby it's joyful and fulfilling as opposed to this wretched journey whereby you're stressed out and you're drinking or you're yelling at people because it's pushing you to the brink. And through that awareness, you might realize, actually, I can become a CEO, but it's going to make me miserable. And therefore, you might want to you know, recalibrate your own expectations or, or hopes yourself. Uh, but it all begins with being aware of what those attachments are and whether it's healthy or, or not healthy. Uh, Benjamin, just looking at the time here, and for this installment to talking about Anthony DeMello anyway, we, we can, we'll have to put a pin in it shortly. Uh, I look, I always ask my guests at the end of the conversation to, to say, what is a good life for you? Now, usually it's somewhat unfair in this circumstance because the guest has usually been talking about their own journey a bit more and their own uh, their own experiences in life. But I can't let you away from uh, the podcast without asking you, uh, Benjamin, what what is a good life for you? For me, it's really clear now, which is I'm able to be like present with my daughter. And I remember years ago, I listened to this podcast episode with Tim Ferriss and Josh Waitskin. And Josh Waitskin wrote a gorgeous book called The Art of Learning because he'd become a world champion in chess and in uh, slow hands, a bit of martial arts technique. And in this interview with Tim Ferriss is probably the most moving thing I've ever heard someone say because he's a high achiever, you know, has become a, a world champion, Olympic champion in two areas. And yet the way he spoke about being being a dad, I found the most moving thing I've ever heard. And I've spent a lot of my life focused on how ultimately we find our gifts and contribute those gifts in our communities and to volunteering and to ultimately how do we alleviate suffering in the world, unnecessary suffering. And since becoming a dad, I'm, I'm convinced that if we want to truly build a better world, if we just focus on being great parents, mm. we probably would have far less tyranny and exploitation and suffering. Because I think ultimately that type of, let's call it negative behaviours or negative leadership come from people that aren't aware and are, are perhaps you know, got pent up anger or whatever it might be. And you know, the thing I've learned in becoming a parent is that like, if, you, if kids can be raised well, which means they're seen, they're not shamed they're given good boundaries, healthy boundaries, and they're loved, and they experience no violence or ill treatment, we would probably see our society truly transform. And it, I guess in some ways links to our conversation, which is we're, we're putting all these attachments on, on young people. And, you know, we've seen through good intentions, but bad ideas, to, to quote a phrase from Jonathan Hayden, his book, like the latest generation of young people with, you know, they're the most anxious, depressed, medicated of any generation, which is tragic. And um, but at the same time, I think they're the most aware, you know, perhaps environmentally, socially conscious. And so I think every generation has its own challenge. Uh, but to me, if I'm a present dad, which means I'm really there for my daughter and I can be a great parent to her, then I know I'm probably getting the rest of my mm -hmm. life right. And so to me, a, a, a good life is being present for my daughter. And I think actually that comes from, and not trying to sell the story we've been telling here, I think a good life is is actually being unattached from from pretty much everything else, which um, I think in some ways would you know be unhealthy for me. Well, it, it would have been... Uh... 
it, w- it would have undermined the whole conversation if you didn't loop in attachments in some way. But but I yeah. like what you said too there too though in terms of you know if your your daughter is seen and loved and you know even when we we're touching on the work of Anthony Demello too, like he says to loving is really just to see things how they are. And you know when you're kind of even saying not not putting any attachments on on the like uh, or even not putting any expectations on her as well or or just a, a doing a good job as a parent is allowing them to evolve as 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 they as they do naturally as well i believe so um i think that just reinforces the point as well of a lot of what we've been discussing too um look benjamin thank you so much for joining me here on the what is a good life podcast uh, i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and i look forward to speaking again with you soon yeah thanks so much mark it's uh, a real privilege and i think what you're doing is really really brilliant so yeah it's been a pleasure Cheers, mate.